through kind of step by step trying to figure out uh, not only what does the Bible say in the book of Exodus, but then uh, how does that apply to us today? How does that mirror uh, the gospel and the way that uh, Jesus took on the cross? And so we heard that last week as, as uh, God through Moses parts the Red Sea and the Israelites are saved. We, we saw the same picture in the way that Jesus through his death uh, parted the, the path between us and God. And so it's through Christ, we've learned, uh, in the way we watch the Israelites, it's through Christ that we have access to God. And so today we go, okay, but then now what? Now what? And so what we're going to be doing is finishing this series, and uh, what we're going to do is join the Israelites on the far shore of freedom. It's actually a perfect picture as, as you kind of get in through the water and you come out the other side, well then what? What is life about once you come out? And so uh, I don't know if you ever had that feeling of being on the other side of freedom, of being in something and, and feeling trapped in it. And then when you get out, you just, you can kind of take a deep breath and go, yeah, this is, this is okay. I like this. I had that feeling, uh, it's been a while now. Every, every time I think about it, I feel a little bit older. But in Austin, Texas, I graduated from the University of Texas in a uh, decade plus, decade and a half now. And I remember it was August of, of that year. I, I was finishing my last class. I was taking uh, the history of the German Democratic Republic um, which I know you're all, you're going to ask me about that later because we all like it so much. But it was just, you know, one last history class to get a degree. I was living in San Antonio, which was an hour and a half drive because my apartment lease had expired right before I finished school. And so I was making this kind of daily commute and, and I just felt like it was coming to a close. And I remember when I took that last exam, I took that last final and I walked out of the building and it's Austin in August, and it's, you know, like 140 degrees. Like, you walk out into a, a, just a hair dryer in your face is what it feels like. And usually, walking out of a cold academic building into that is just sort of this miserable thing. And I remember that day feeling alive, like, whoa, I like this. I walk across the campus, I find my car somewhere, I get back in my car, and I just sat there for a minute in the stifling heat going, no, no, I feel alive. There's something good. I feel free. I, I, I did it. It's behind me. I took a deep breath, and that day I drove the long way home. Just like you can go, uh, when we go to the airport in Detroit, you can go straight up 75. It is uh, not the scenic route, but it's a little faster if you don't hit traffic. There's also the long way where you can take the back roads and the scenic route. And that day I drove home the scenic route. And I just sort of felt like a new life within me, that I had gotten out of this thing that it just, you know, it was a slog. College for me was an incredible experience. I had uh, mono uh, one semester, which I got from studying too hard. And um, wait for that one. And so I kind of barely made it through that semester. They made me take a class called Study Skills um, for Undergraduates, which is what you take when your GPA drops below a certain number because you're not studying. A couple uh, semesters later, I found myself in St. Louis donating a lung as part of my sister's transplant. And I tried to keep classes from a distance. It didn't work. The internet wasn't really a thing back then. Uh, and so I lost a semester there. And in the course of my studies, I learned, uh, I became fully fluent in Italian. I got my history degree with a minor in urban geography. I was studying all these things that I really cared about, I really was interested in. I had a lot of chicken wings at 2 a.m., a lot of chicken wings at 2 a.m. Uh, the driver knew my apartment and my name. And when I called, they didn't ask me what I wanted. They just said the usual, and I said yes. And I drove away from all of that into this new freedom that was 
at the same time exhilarating as it was sort of terrifying. Because I had four years of knowing what was next. College is, is sort of this uh, knowing what's next journey where every time you, you're so glad to be done, but you're also excited because you just register for another set of classes. And you know what's coming. You know the rhythm. You get into a pattern. And now that was gone. In, in a sense, security was gone. That security of knowing what's coming next was gone. And, and I knew at that point my next stop was South Africa, which I was totally unqualified for to go be a missionary. And I had no idea what I would actually do. Little did I know after that I would find marriage and ministry and kids. And at times, still at times, I romanticize college. We long for those simpler days, right? Oh, man, college was so great, wasn't it? We just, just go back to less responsibility and, and you sleep late. And I don't think it's all that it was cracked up to be. I think about it, and then when I try to be objective, I go, all night writing papers, making one bad relational decision after another, chicken wings at 2 a.m., like, that wasn't the life that I've created in, in my romantic memory. And what it is, is when we think that way, when I think, gosh, I just college was so much simpler, what I'm yearning for, if I, if I don't really think about it rightly, if I, well, I'm yearning for bondage. I'm kind of yearning to go back to this thing that I was so excited to get out of, but man, at least I knew what was coming the next day. That, that I'm out, can I go back now sort of feeling. I'm out. You ever had that feeling? Get out of something? Bad relationship or a job or a season of life or, or, and you get out. And you feel that first burst of freedom, I'm out. And within a week or two, you're going, kind of miss it. That's where we find the Israelites. In Exodus 16, we see them free and yet longing for something that they've just left behind. And so I'll begin reading in Exodus 16, and then we're going to jump to 17. It says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you, you've brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and they said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So we find the sons of Israel, the, the people of God, having been rescued from backbreaking slavery through miraculous means. And not long after, they look back and they literally say, remember the good old days when we were enslaved in Egypt and we had bread and meat and all we needed? They, they literally are, are a couple of weeks removed from dancing on the far side of the Red Sea, from dancing and singing and celebrating together that they were finally free, that God had vanquished their enemies. 
And now they're grumbling. How quickly we forget. Israel, I would say, is addicted to slavery. They become addicted to slavery. It's the seduction of security that got them. And they have this, this longing back for the security of at least I know what's next. At least I know where the meal is coming from. At least I know what the day holds. And it's an odd thing to say that they would be addicted to slavery. But if we're, if we're looking at it, we can see that it provided something for them. Most sin does for us. It provides something for them. For the Israelites, they were both victim, which was an identity piece for them. We are victims. We are a people of victimhood. But it was also a security and an anchor. And yet security is a two-sided coin. Because a prison is secure, but it doesn't mean it's good. Driving your car into a lake and then staying buckled in because you feel safe. And you're unsure of what would happen if you unbuckled and tried to get out of your sinking car. Well, that's security. There is a, a, a modicum of security in being buckled into the sinking car. But it's not good for you. This is a common problem for us. What we see the Israelites doing is common for us as well. So many of us stay in bondage out of fear or out of comfort or out of simple idolatry. We want to be free from something, but when we consider the alternative, which can be the unknown, we'll just stay with what we know. We'll stay with comfort. And the problem is that comfort constrains us. The Israelites are enslaved and set free. You and I are enslaved to sin, both universally and specifically. Right? We're born into a world awash in sin, and we fully enter into that. Upon salvation, we're freed from the burden of that. We're freed from the wrath of that. And yet, we still have these specific areas where we find ourselves engaged or enslaved to sin. Like we said last week, that which enslaves us always pursues us. Sin is always trying to draw us back. Always reminding us of the way it made us feel. Or the way that they looked at us. Or like the Israelites, how secure it was to at least be there. It's like wings at 2 a.m. It's a lie. It's a good idea when you place the order. It's a bad idea when you have heartburn at 4 a.m. But you don't know that in the moment. You don't sense that in the moment because in the moment, it's a, yeah, this is just what I do. Why is it such a battle? Why is it such a battle for believers in Jesus to make a declaration I will follow him with my life. I'm giving up my life and I'm taking on the life of Christ. That seems like a radical decision. Why is it so hard to make a decision like that and then to actually live it out? Why is it so hard to, to stick on the path that, we've, that we know God has laid out for us rather than going back to the things that he's already freed us from? Why is that so difficult? I'd say it's because freedom is both instantaneous and a process. Freedom is both instantaneous and a process. In the instant, when the Israelites' feet hit the far shore, they are fully saved. They cross the Red Sea. They've uh, escaped slavery. They're fully free, fully saved. Same is true for us. In the moment of belief, the Bible teaches us that we are fully free, fully saved. In the moment of belief that Jesus is God's Son who came to take our place, to sacrificially die, be buried, and then rise so that we might, through him, have life. The moment that belief is real, Scripture says that's called salvation. 
He's my Lord. He is my Savior. And I, I purpose to walk after him. And yet, even though the sea crashes in on the Egyptians, even though the enslaver is no more, they still got to live. They have to work it out. Ask anyone who has come out of prison. It takes time to adjust. Time to go from an institutionalized life, enchained, into a life of freedom. Time to adjust. It's, it's learning to live, and that's the process. My wife and I went on a date this week. Yes? It's a true story. When you don't know uh, people very well, it's hard to think, like, who, who could watch our kids? And, you know, everybody would raise your hand, but you go, I don't, I don't know. I mean, can we go on a date? So we, we've been slow in getting this process started, but we, yeah, there's, there's one. I see that hand. <laughs> we, we got away, went to Ann Arbor for a night, um, just went and had dinner, just walked around, explored something new. What was really interesting for us is driving home. Uh, this, is, this is not going to be surprising for you, but driving home after dinner and, and shopping and, and being out at eight and nine o'clock at night, it was dark, which is really weird for us. Uh, so I'm going to confess something that is really weird about us, and you just can't make fun of us um, in the future. You, we're, we got a bond here now. So when we lived in South Africa, the sun would go down about 4.30 in the afternoon. And South Africa was an incredibly dangerous place. Johannesburg uh, was for years the murder capital of the world. Um, I lived in a house with 12 African people, and in my first year living there, every single one of them had been uh, robbed, mugged, or held at gunpoint in, during that year. Uh, I was the only one who hadn't been, uh, primarily because I was more afraid than they were, I think. But I also didn't go out at night. Because night was when most of these things happened. When, when darkness falls, the city would kind of just tumble into chaos. And so I made a pledge. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm trying to survive this. And so as much as possible, unless I'm leaving church and in the church van from church to the house, I don't go out at night. I'm hungry. I'll, I'll make it till morning. I'll, I'll figure it out, but I'm not going out. So my wife and I are living there, and, and we have the same rule. We say, unless we have to be, we're not going out at night. She was the driver for the church. She drove a 16-passenger van on the wrong side of the road, a stick shift, the whole thing. So she's very... She looks like secret talents. And we'd go into neighborhoods and they'd say, don't you dare stop. They'd open the door while the car is going and they'd usher somebody out while the car is still moving because they go, if you stop, we're all going to die. And you, you think like, well, I can't really be. They'd say, you don't stop at red lights. In a city of 10 million people, a highly industrialized city, they say, you do not stop at red lights at night. It is your suggestion to slow down and make sure you're not going to get T-boned in the intersection, but you slow down long enough to make sure you can gun it and go. And this was... This was nighttime in Johannesburg. So we didn't go out at night unless we had to. As a result, we came back to America, and when we are out at nighttime still, 10 years later, it spooks us. Like, we don't know what to do. We're looking around like, this is weird. And we were driving home from our date this week. We're driving home from Ann Arbor on the world's safest roads in the world's safest place, right? The only thing that could attack us is a cut-off cornstalk or something. And I'm still looking at her. I'm like, it's nighttime. This is strange. And it hit me. I was like, that's exactly what we're talking about. That, that when we left South Africa, we were free to do whatever we wanted at night again. 
We're no longer bound by that darkness. We're no longer bound by that danger. It's not the same anymore. And yet, if we're honest with you, we would say 10 years later, we're still processing and working through the process of what it means to feel safe at night. No, no, we're not crazy people. We're not double locking the doors. And, um, and yet, we don't go out at night very often. It's just a process. Philippians 2, uh, verse 12, Paul writes, Then, uh, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul instructs the church to work out their salvation. Not work for your salvation, right? Salvation is this gift. But work in it. On the far side of the shore, on the other side of the water, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We see the Israelites, what are they doing? They're walking and grumbling. What about this? And I wish I could go back to that. And he says, don't do that. Work out your salvation. Begin to walk in the goodness that's been bestowed upon you. But we grumble. We grumble because we forget where we came from. We grumble because we stand on the far shore and we look back over the sea at the security and the allure of an old life. So many of us find ourselves, whether in our first year of salvation or our 40th year, we find ourselves saved but stalled. Many of us live in permanent infancy. The picture in the Bible of being born again, that there's this rebirth and, and then we grow into mature believers. And a lot of us, I mean, we've had that salvation experience. We've had that moment where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we believe this thing and the Holy Spirit has come upon us and, and, and we're secure and we're free. But we're not growing in our faith. We find security in, in the swaddle. There's a couple of folks with new babies around here. One of the greatest things in the world is swaddling a baby. As a dad, I took incredible pride in my ability to swaddle my children uh, just tightly enough not to kill them, but um, there's no way they were getting out. And then you hold this little football, you know, and they're so happy. I've never met a baby that wasn't just thrilled to be swaddled really tight, just to be held and be secure and be wrapped up and constrained in that way. That's a fun age because you swaddle the kid and then eventually the kid will cry and you know it's change me, feed me. Change me, feed me, swaddle me. Feed me, change me, swaddle me, swaddle me, feed me. Like that's the whole thing. So if we live in that state of Christianity, swaddled, comfortable, feed me, feed me, feed me, change me, swaddle me again. We can get really used to that. Our culture, our, our church culture, uh, not specifically here, but uh, kind of universally in the American sense, our church culture would encourage that. Come, enjoy, go home, live life, see you next Sunday. That's why in our community groups, we, we have three goals, right? We gather, we share, and we bless. And this is a struggle for some people because for so long, home group, community group, small group, whatever you call it, has had an element of study. No, no, we get together to study. And yet what we know to be true about 
believers as a generalization, American believers, is we have no shortage of ability to study. We have no shortage of material to study. We have no shortage of access to scripture and to commentaries and to devotionals. And we have all of that. And so when we gather together as the church, what we're desperately in need of is not more feed me, but it's to break that swaddle. It's to actually get out of the comfort of the constraint of feed me, feed me, change me, comfort me, swaddle me, feed me. And it's to release and go and begin to feed others. But it's hard because we've been conditioned that when, when Christians come to our house and we sit in a circle, we do a Bible study and we learn more and it feels good. But maturity only comes in experience and exploration. Think of a, a child. You could, you could probably find a way with duct tape and a little bit of ingenuity to swaddle an 8-year-old or swaddle a 12-year-old, right? <laughs> Some of you have tried this. I know it's possible. But that kid doesn't learn unless they begin to walk and experience and explore. And there's something magical about about that 14-month-old, about the 18-month-old, as they begin to pull up on things and walk around and explore and everything's in their mouth, and, and yet that's when they're growing. That's when they're, they're, they're starting to figure things out. That's, that's in that exploration and experience stage when they go, wait, maybe there's something to this. Like you can read all the books you want about mountaineering. I read a great book about people who climb Mount Everest. Great book. You can read anything you want about mountaineering. But you have to experience it to grow in it and know it. And so, so often we look at, at, at ourselves as Western Christians. And, and we would, if we're honest, say we have the best ropes, we have the best tents, we have the best gear. And most of us have never stood on a peak and surveyed the vast beauty of God. Much less led someone else to that view. And that's the call on us as followers. It's disciples who make disciples. It's, it's people who grow into a maturity in faith so as to show others maturity in faith. Because we can all buy all the best gear all we want and have a garage full of the coolest stuff and feel really good about it that if we're ever stuck on a mountain, we're secure. But what Scripture is just yelling at us to do over and over, what Paul is imploring, what Peter is imploring, what John is imploring, what Jesus is imploring is that we might put the salvation that we've been given to use by leading other people to say, look at the view I have. Will you join me? When discipleship happens, it's this radical thing. And most people, when we use the word discipleship, there, there's some cultural, contextual, historical things that, that get mixed up with that. But, but simply one believer uh, training up and leading another is what we're talking about. Most people, when we say, hey, would you mind discipling someone? Most people say, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not qualified. I need a little bit more seasoning, a little bit more study. I need to know more. I don't have all the answers. I, I don't have it figured out. So I just need some more. In the places in the world right now where this is happening most effectively, people who've been believers for two days are discipling people who've been believers for one. Because they got one more day on them. And discipling isn't, I'm the expert and I'm going to tell you how to do it. Discipling is, I got some mountaineering gear and I, I want to share it with you and let's climb this thing together. So when we say gather, share, bless, that's what we're saying. Let's put our stuff to use together. And there'll be times we need to sit down and read the manual. There's times we need to go and buy new gear. There's times we need to huddle up and, and recenter and figure out what our tactics are. And yet, let's go do this. I'm mixing metaphors, but at some point the baby breaks the swaddle, right? 
At some point, the baby starts walking, and there's this glorious freedom in watching your child take their first steps. We cheer first steps. We try to have a camera ready so we can capture first steps. They're these, like, monumental things. The same is true for our faith when we finally begin to break the swaddle of the comfort of the constraining Christianity that so many of us live in. When we finally say, I'm going to take a step, and heaven cheers for that. But we falsely associated freedom with security. No one is more secure than a man in chains, and no one is less free. And so only in Jesus, this perfect paradox, can we know the fullness of security and freedom. Can it fully coexist? Soren Kierkegaard said, herein lies true freedom. The ability to fulfill one's duty and to move from what is to what ought to be. True freedom is the ability to fulfill one's duty to move from what is to what ought to be. There's a movement taking place. There's transformation taking place. And so as we look at the Israelites and the journey they've taken, it's about taking one step for them. Just take the next step in obedience. God has brought you this far. We want to yell at them because they don't seem to get it. They don't have the picture of the perspective we do of history to go, you guys realize what God has brought you out of? And yet in our own lives, we, we kind of need that person to look at us when, when we're stalled and go, do you realize what God has brought you out of? Freedom in Jesus is both instantaneous and a process. There's glory in that instant. But we have to start walking. Otherwise, we're like the Israelites and we stand on the shore of salvation, dancing, singing songs on Sunday morning. But only when we start to walk do we realize we, we've not matured much. We're still grumbling. We're still longing for slavery. And so I would ask you, if you're a believer, what's your next step? What's your next step? If yesterday was the day you first believed, or 45 years ago was the day you first believed, every single one of us has a next step, a next summit. What's yours? There's all kinds of areas I could pinpoint and say, you know, for somebody in here, they're going to say, you know, my next step is just learning to be more generous. It's hard for me. I mean, I, if I'm honest, I grumble when, when I get a letter in the mail asking to support someone on a mission trip or when I, you know, when we talk about money in church, I kind of just, something in me, maybe my next step is how do I become more generous? And for a lot of people, obedience comes easy in a lot of areas, but not that one. Maybe your next step is joining a community group or saying, I want to host a community group. Because you say, you know what, I really like my life, and I like the comfort of it, and I like that I've, you know, I got it all kind of figured out, and, and what do you mean go to somebody else's house? What do you mean have people in my house? That sounds like a hassle. I got to clean it, and, I gotta, and you start grumbling even thinking about the idea. There might be a hint there as to what needs to happen. Tying our lives to other believers, agreeing to walk that journey together. Maybe your next step is reaching out about making your faith more than a private, personal thing. It might rain next week and we don't have a fam jam at all, but the reason we're having fam jam on the first day of a brand new series right after Easter is because there's never an easier time that if you wanted to invite somebody to hear the gospel, they could hear it. And yet the church is not where ministry takes place. The church is where the ministers gather to be encouraged to go out and do ministry. And so maybe your next step of faith is, you know what, I, I need to actually accept that God calls me a minister and I need to go and whatever that means. Start serving my neighbors. Start sharing my faith. 
We got flyers and seats, and there's black giving boxes on the wall, and all that. We have all of that, but it's between you and God. Because I can't diagnose what your next step is either, any more than you can diagnose mine. And I certainly have plenty. What we can do is we can look at this picture in Exodus of these people who've been saved from so much, who've been brought out of so much, and we can say, there's something there, and I need to capture that. I need to grab hold of that in my life. And each and every one of us can personally say, there is this step I can take to grow in maturity in my faith. You saw people get baptized today. For some, that's a step that has been waiting to happen for a long time. For some, that was their first step. The first chance after belief that they got the opportunity, they said, I'm in. That's the New Testament. When, when people were saved, the first thing that happened is they were baptized. It was their way of saying, I'm going to be marked by this thing. I'm going to come out of this water, and as a public proclamation, I better live the life I'm claiming, because I just did it in front of all you people. I said, here's what I believe. Maybe you want to get baptized today. We got shorts, shirts. I got a tub of really warm water. Don't tell on me. You say, well, I was baptized as a kid. I was too. I was raised Catholic. A priest sprinkled water on my forehead, said some magic words. My parents brought my aunt and uncle. They became my godparents that day. That was my parents' dedication, not my proclamation. When you read the Bible, you see baptism was never intended to be something that our parents did for us. It's something that a believer does to proclaim to the world that they've been changed. So I climbed back into the water as an adult. Like Matt did. Like others. I said, you know what? I need to make this mine. I took that step. So maybe you're here and you say, you know what? All these things you talk about, all, maybe all that's true, but maybe that's my step. Maybe I need to get baptized. Um, today can be your day. Doesn't have to be. We can bring this back out another day. We can work this another day. But for some people in the room, the Holy Spirit moves and we feel this thing in us that go, yeah, yeah I probably should do that. And so we're going to close by saying this. If you are in a place where baptism is something you've been meaning to do, thinking you should do, or just today you said, I saw that and I've never done that and I need to proclaim my faith so I can start on the journey to maturity. If that's something you want to do today, we're ready for you. We'll have folks at the back door that'll hand you fresh clothes. We'll have folks to walk you through the process. We have towels. We'll work you through it. I would love nothing more than for every single person in here to be able to walk out of here with a next step acknowledged. So for most of us, that's going to be something only we know, and we're going to have to go and make it work. But if you're in here and baptism is your thing, that's available to you. So what we're going to do is take our communion, and as while we do that, uh, the band is going to come back up now, and we're going to take communion as a family, which is what we do. We take the bread, which represents Jesus, and we dip it in the cup, which represents his, his blood, his body and his blood that was broken for us, that was poured out for us, and we remember him. And so the offers out there on the table, maybe as people come forward today to take communion, maybe you sneak to the back. And we're ready. And if there's no one today, if today we say, you know what, maybe another day, I got four people in line already for the next time we drag this thing out. And maybe you say, I don't know if I'm ready today, but I just want to talk to somebody. Come on to the back. I'll be waiting back there to say, can I just talk to you about it? Can we figure this out together? Because our desire is not to work you through a religious 12-step process to make you feel more holy. 
Our desire is to create moments where we can say, as of this day, I come out of the water and I don't look back. I won't be the Israelites. I won't look back and grumble. I will not look back and long for what I used to be. I'm going to stand up out of that water. And as the people clap, that picture is so perfect. I am transformed. I am changed. I am known. And I will walk the path that you've set before me. Let's pray.